Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of God. Join me in a time of prayer once more. God, we commit this time to you, and we pray and ask that would you have mercy upon us at this time, and really speak to us, Lord, for we can all um, humbly acknowledge that this is an area that we uh, fail miserably uh, when it comes to forgiving one another. So God, through this message, uh, would you speak to all of us, rebuke us if needed, and we just pray and ask that um, would you continue to enable and empower us um, through the power of the gospel uh, so that we may learn to love and forgive like you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, last week, I preached on the importance of loving those around us as Christ has loved us. And and this morning, um, I'll be focusing on uh, how we ought to to love and to forgive those around us as we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. You know, to be uh, brutally honest, um, it's so ironic that the Lord uh, convicted my heart to to preach on these two topics back-to-back love and forgiveness, because this is an area that I have failed miserably this entire month, and lately this is something that I've been really wrestling and struggling with. So so funny, isn't it, that the Lord uh, really convicted me to preach on this, because these are the very things that I have been wrestling with um, as of late. And I really pray and hope that uh, that through this message that, that you'll be also challenged to to love and forgive like Christ. And if this is an area that, that you also have been struggling um, I pray that, that this message will also encourage you because there is hope that through the gospel we can learn to love and forgive our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me begin by sharing a story. A man and woman had been married for more than 60 years. They had shared everything. They had talked about everything. They had kept no secrets from each other except that the little old woman had a shoebox in the top of her closet that she had cautioned her husband never to open or ask her about. For all of these years, he had never thought about the box. But one day, the little old woman got really sick, and the doctor said it will, be, it, will take, take, it will take some time to heal. In trying to sort out their affairs, the little old man took down the shoebox and took it to his wife's bedside. She agreed that it was time that he should know what was inside the box. When he opened it, he found two knitted dolls and a stack of money, cash, totaling $95,000. He asked her about the contents. When we were to be married, she said, my grandmother told me that the secret of a happy marriage was to never argue. She told me that if I ever got angry with you, I should just keep quiet and knit a doll. The little old man was so moved and he had to fight back tears. Only two precious dolls were in the box. She had only been angry with him two times in all those years of living and loving. He almost burst with happiness. Honey, he said, that explains the doll, but what about all this money? Where did it come from? Oh, she said, that's the money I made from selling the dolls. Now, why am I sharing this story? To all the wives out there, I'm not implying that the next time your husband 
makes you angry, that you should just keep quiet <laughs> and let it all and put it away. That's not the point of this story. The point is this, and it, it applies to every single one of us, that as long as we live, we will be sinned against. And guess what? It will happen over and over and over again. Why is that? Because we live in a broken world that is filled with broken people, which means you will be sinned against. Her people, her people. It's inevitable. And you shouldn't be too surprised when people sin against you because that's what sinners do best. They sin. And when someone sins against you, how do you usually respond? Do you get angry? Do you get bitter? Do you get frustrated? I mean, we tend to respond with such emotions, and, and these are legitimate and appropriate responses, especially if you have been sinned against, right? But the gospel paints a radically different picture for us when it comes to how we ought to respond when we are being sinned against. The topic for us this morning is forgiveness. And during this sermon, I'll be raising three points. Point number one, the danger of bitterness. Point number two, forgiven in Christ. And point number three, learning to forgive in Christ. Let's jump into the first point, the danger of bitterness. When was the last time you were sinned against? Take a moment to think about that. This week? This morning? On the way to church? And when you were sinned against, how did you feel? Did you immediately become angry? and bitter, and frustrated? How did you respond? Did you erupt emotionally like a volcano? Did you blow up at that person? Did you strike back with piercing and painful words that cut to the heart? Did you lash out with harsh words that wound deeply? If you can relate, don't be discouraged because you're not alone. I've been there. I mean, we've all been there, right? And in fact, this is what's normal, this is what's natural for broken sinners like you and me who desperately need God's grace every moment of our lives. And let's be honest, when we are sinned against, the last thing on our mind is forgiveness. You're extremely bitter about what happened. You're thinking revenge, justice, and you refuse to live out what we just read in Ephesians 4.32. Being kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, forgiving that person, no way, not going to happen. And here's the thing. The more bitter you are, the more difficult it will be for you to forgive someone. And this is why Apostle Paul urges us in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31, verse 31, to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and along with all malice. I want to actually draw your attention to the word uh, put away. In Greek, this, uh, this word, airo, actually means to raise from the ground. It actually means to take up. I know in our English translations, it has been translated as either put away or to get rid of. And the way this specific word has been translated into English can be somewhat misleading because it makes it seem like bitterness is something that we can just simply remove, get rid of, throw away. Unfortunately, this is not 
the case. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, the author of Hebrews uses the imagery of a root in order to warn us about the danger of bitterness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See, in that sense, it would be more fitting to translate that specific word, Iro, which has been translated in our translation as put away, I think it would be more fitting to translate that as uproot because the root of bitterness is something that needs to be immediately uprooted. I think Pastor Mark Driscoll uh, offers the following words of advice, and this is very helpful, and I quote, We only have two possible responses when it comes to those who have sinned against us, forgiveness or bitterness. And like weeds, the Bible tells us bitterness has roots. Consequently, when others sin against us, we can whack away at the surface our frustrations, disappointments, angers, hurts, and sadness, or we can pull up our bitterness before it takes root. If you don't pull up the root of bitterness, it invariably returns bigger than ever. It's like a taproot. The longer you wait, the harder it is to pull it up. And this is why Paul writes, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, 20, verse uh, 26, don't let the sun go down in your anger because it will take root. The more you harbor anger, it will take root in your heart and in your life, and that will lead to other devastating things. And this is why bitterness, before it can take root in your life and in your heart, must be dealt with right away. And if you fail to uproot the root of bitterness, it would inevitably lead to the vicious cycle of bitterness, which is mentioned in verse 31 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Let's read it together. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you um, along with all malice. See, Paul lists these things one by one. And as you can see, bitterness leads to wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. And I'm not sure if you can notice this right away, but bitterness and wrath and anger is something that is internal, whereas um, starting from clamor, slander, and malice, these things become external. And when it comes to clamor, that is when you have reached the point where you can't contain this anger and bitterness anymore. So you decide since you can't contain it anymore, you decide to act upon it, to actively engage the person who has sinned against you in order to intentionally hurt that person emotionally or physically. I mean, slander has to do with tearing someone down with words, right? To ruining and destroying that person's reputation. I mean, malice above all things is the worst. What is that? Because malice says, I will destroy you. Whatever it takes, no matter what the cost, I will destroy you. And when it comes to, to this point, rock bottom, I mean, this is a place where people all of a sudden become capable of a horrific evil. People start acting out of character. And this is what happens if you don't uproot the, the root of bitterness. You start harboring wrath, anger, and bitterness, what's inside. But the, lo- the longer it takes for you to uproot it, it will eventually lead to clamor, slander, and malice. And as you can see, it escalates quickly and it 
intensifies. It gets worse and worse and worse. And its impact is devastating to both you and others, especially to those around you. And as it spreads like wildfire, there's collateral damage. Do you know who takes absolute delight in them? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice, the devil. Because these are some of the devil's most favorite weapons, ammunitions. And the devil strategically uses them to destroy friendships, relationships, to tear apart families, to hurt the body of Christ. And this is why Paul specifically commands in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27, do not sin in your anger and do not let the sun go down in your anger. Because if you do, you're giving opportunities to the devil. And in doing so, you end up becoming, unfortunately, an instrument of unrighteousness. And this is why it is imperative that you uproot the root of bitterness immediately. And I think we tend to underestimate the, bitter, uh, the danger of bitterness and especially what it can do to you and, and, and to those around you as well. Now let's jump into our second point, forgiven in Christ. And in verse 32, Apostle Paul commands us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think Paul Tripp is helpful here when he writes that forgiveness has a vertical and horizontal dimension. You know, the vertical dimension has to do with us being you know, forgiven in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, reconciliation, right? And the horizontal has to do with forgiving one another and loving each other. Now, let's consider the vertical dimension of forgiveness. And, and, for, and to do that, I would like for us to delve into two passages, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, so that we can unpack this a little bit more. Let me read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 8. Blessed be the God and the Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which is lavished upon us. Here, Apostle Paul reminds us how much God loves us. I mean, he reminds us that, that God chose us and loved us before the foundation of the world, that he chose us in Jesus Christ and he predestined us so that through the finished work of the cross, we will become his beloved and precious sons and daughters. And how is this possible? Through the redemption on the cross and through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this is all grace. He has lavished upon us, graced upon grace. Because obviously sinners like you and me, this is something that we do not deserve. None of us is deserving of this kind of love, this kind of mercy, and this kind of saving grace. 
Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were like by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The earlier parts of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul here reminds us who we once were apart from Jesus Christ. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses. We were the sons of disobedience. We were like the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. Destined for eternal punishment in hell. Deserving nothing but God's wrath, holy wrath. In condemnation and punishment. That's who we were. But from verses 4 and on where he started talking about God's love, which changed everything, right? But God, because he is rich in mercy and because he loved us, when we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, he came to our rescue. What kind of love is that? What kind of extravagant grace is that? And what happened? Because he so loved us, he sent this one and only son, Jesus Christ, to go to the cross on our behalf. And because of the finished work of the cross, the once and for all finished work of the cross, everything has changed for sinners like you and me, right? Once and for all. And notice what Paul says, beginning verse 6. It talks about because of the finished work of the cross, this is what happened to you and me. That we have, that we, that, uh, starting verse 5, that we have been made alive together with Christ, that we have been raised, that raised us up with him and then seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. It's all in the past tense, right? Referring to and, and going back to the finished work of the cross. Notice that he doesn't talk about these things in the present tense. As it's something that is being done to us right now or it's something that, that we still await that Christ will do on our behalf. It's something that has already taken place in the past and Paul is talking about the finished work of the cross here. And this is all by mercy, grace, and love. And Paul makes it very clear, right, in verses 8 and 9, that this is by grace. Purely by grace. None of us is deserving of this, and none of us can, can nor can we earn this, right? It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. This is how much God loves broken sinners like you and me, and through the finished work of the cross that we have received redemption and forgiveness of sins. See, Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe, and Jesus came to pay a debt that we could never, ever pay. 
I mean, on the cross, Jesus takes our place, right? He becomes our substitute. And he receives the verdict that you and I should have received. Guilty. Guilty as charged. And get this, the cross is where the sinless Savior becomes sin for us. The cross is where the suffering servant bears God's wrath, punishment, and condemnation on our behalf. The cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. He became sin for us. Our sins, past, present, and future have been imputed to him. But not only that, what he has accomplished for you and me, salvation and his perfect righteousness, as we, as we depend on him and as we cling to him, and has been united with him in faith, what he has accomplished for you and me his, and his perfect righteousness gets now imputed to us. So on the cross, there's this great exchange taking place where Christ takes our sins, past, present, and future, and his perfect righteousness is now imputed to us. And because of the once and for all finished work of the cross on the cross, the verdict that will be rendered on the day of judgment when Christ returns in, in his glory has already been brought into the present. And this is the verdict that we will hear when we, were, when, when we will stand before the throne of God on that day. What is that? Not guilty. Because Christ went to the cross, took our place, became our substitute. And he bore the wrath that we should have received. And, if, and what did he say on the cross? It is finished, right? He finished the work of redemption so that verdict that we will hear on that day has already been brought into the present, not guilty. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. In Christ we are forgiven. If Christ is your Lord and Savior, you should be able to confidently Confess, I am forgiven. We will continue to fall. We will continue to break his heart. And we will continue to see ourselves giving in to sin, wandering away from him, living a life of disobedience. But this fact does not change. Because it is not about our performance. It is finished. It is done. We are forgiven. Tim Keller reminds us the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are fully known yet truly forgiven by God. We are fully known yet perfectly loved by God. And this is the thing. If you don't get the vertical dimension of forgiveness, and if you struggle, if you are still struggling and wrestling with doubt to see, to, to, to see whether you're forgiven or not, the horizontal dimension, the horizontal aspect of forgiveness, you won't be able to practice that. The vertical has to be in place. And if that is, the horizontal will naturally follow. Now, this leads me to my next point. Last point, learning to forgive in Christ. C.S. Lewis writes, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I mean, isn't this 
definitely easier <laughs> said than done. But I do believe that through the power of the Spirit and through the power of the gospel that we can actually live this out, that we can actually love and forgive like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I would like for us to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. And let me read those two verses. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here we see Jesus confronting the Pharisees. Why? Because they are misinterpreting and misapplying the Old Testament scriptures. Because they're saying that it's okay to retaliate. It's okay to strike back when someone sins against you. But how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you, strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, a little exercise. I would like to ask you to turn to the person next to you. And now, this is not the time for sermon application. And, and please do not slap the person next to you right now. No matter how angry that person um, might have made you uh, on the way to church. Um, but here Jesus says, if, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, right, turn the other cheek. Let's say we are all right-handed. And if you turn to the, to the person next to you, and for you to, uh, for someone to hit you uh, on your right cheek if you're right-handed, what kind of slap is that? Have you ever thought about this? If you're right-handed, and if you want to hit someone on the right side of their cheek, is it, is it a swing this way or is it a backhanded? It's a backhanded slap, right? Now, why is this so significant? Context. Here, Jesus is speaking, and the Gospels are being written in the first century in Palestine. And, and in the worldview, and according to the value systems of the first century Palestinian Jew, there was nothing more offensive than to be slapped backhanded. Did you know that? During those days... To be backslapped by someone was considered more horrific than a violent crime such as rape or homicide. And if you're caught backslapping someone and convicted, you were fined one year's wage. To them, there was nothing more horrific than to be sinned against in this manner. But what does Jesus say? Someone slaps you. Backhanded slap cheek, turn the other cheek. Now, to those who are listening to these very words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth, I mean, they're probably, they probably would have responded, yeah, this is just crazy. This is mind-boggling. You know, how can we respond in this manner after that has happened to me? But this is what Jesus is saying. When someone offends you and sins against you, even in this manner, or you fill in the blank, whatever makes you, whatever, whatever you think is the most offensive in your own words. Even in those manners, Jesus is saying, turn the other cheek. Love and forgive so that they will know that you are my disciples. Here, Jesus is teaching us how we really ought to love and forgive. William Smith, in his book, Loving Well, Even If You Haven't, this is what he writes. I quote, 
In a fallen world, you will not need to look for people to harm you. But when they do, make sure they have a chance to see Jesus. It's not a matter of letting others sin against you. They are going to. It's a matter of how you respond. Real, honest forgiveness is a challenge, but it's also the way other people see and experience Jesus from us. Now, I want to challenge all of you the next time you find yourself being sinned against, the next time you see yourself in the midst of a conflict, try to see it as, an, as a gospel opportunity to share and to reflect the love of God in both words and deeds. You know, last week during my sermon, I shared that, that I struggled and I had recently had, had a conflict with a, with a family member. So I just wanted to share a little, little bit more update uh, on, on what happened afterwards. So it wasn't easy because the family member um, came back and then we had to spend a little bit more time um, together. Uh, at first, you know, Shani and I, we were really dreading it because, like, it was so unfortunate what happened and we were still processing. And, and to, be, to be brutally honest, I mean, reconciliation and forgiveness, that was the last thing on our mind. You know, before that family member uh, came back to, to our place, you know, all I, can think of, all I can think about was, okay, protect my heart, protect Shine's heart so that nothing crazy happens again. Let's just, um, let's just ask God to have mercy so that we can just uh, enjoy each other's company and then just say bye. Right? I mean, I was just on the defensive, you know, everywhere, just making sure that nothing crazy happens. But by the mercy of God, I mean, I was still bitter somewhat and still angry. But it was, it was looking back, it was purely by the grace of God that, that it stopped right there, the cycle of bitterness. It didn't go to clamor, slander, and malice. And it's not because, you know, I did something right. It's purely by grace that God stopped it right there. He didn't let sin run its course all the way, right? To cut the long story short, we were able to reconcile and forgive each other. And this is something that, that none of us, you know, both of us could have orchestrated because it's just purely by God's grace and mercy. And we were able to, to reconcile and forgive each other. And, and it was so humbling because that's something that, that we initially wanted, but in our sinfulness, you know, part of us were still telling us, no, we shouldn't seek that. We shouldn't want forgiveness and reconciliation considering what really happened, right? But that's what happened. God enabled us. God moved all of our hearts so that we ended up reconciling and forgiving each other. And, and, and it was very humbling because in the, in, the, in the midst of all this, I just once again was reminded of just how sinful, you know, my heart is and how I am unable to love and forgive like Christ. Mark Driscoll um, Concerning bitterness and why it hurts so much, this is what he writes. Bitterness is often related to how much you love the offender. If a stranger sins against you, you're unlikely to become bitter. But if a beloved family member or friend sins against you, you're likelier to become bitter because you have higher expectations for the relationship. The pain it causes is severe because the person who caused it was loved, trusted, and given um, privileged access to our souls. Those you love most are the likeliest candidates for causing bitterness. I think that is so true. 
by the grace of God, we were able to reconcile and forgive each other. But does that mean that I'll be able to forget what happened, forget the words that, that, that were spoken to and against? Absolutely not. I can never forget those words. And does that mean that, we're, is it that we're, when we forgive that we forget? I don't think so because that's just not realistic, right? How can we possibly forget? And I think Paul Tripp is, is, is helpful here, and he writes this in his book, Relationships, a, a Mess Worth Making. I quote, forgiveness is not forgetting. Too often people say that the evidence of having truly forgiven someone is to forget what he has done to you. The passage that is often quoted is Jeremiah 31, 34, where God says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This verse, some, um, this verse, some say, is how we should forgive. There are at least two problems with this understanding of forgiveness. First, it is not realistic. Our minds don't function this way, and our ability to remember is powerful. Trying to forget a sin uh, someone has committed against you will only encourage you to remember it. Completely erasing an offense from your memory is not realistic. Second, it is not biblical. The passage in Jeremiah does not say that God has amnesia when he looks at you. Our omniscient God does not forget anything. The word remember is not a memory word, but a promise word, a covenant word. God is promising that when we confess our sins, I will not treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, I will forgive you. This is why forgiveness is both a past event and an ongoing promise into the future. It is a past promise you keep in the future. Like I said, what happened with this family member is so unfortunate, and we can never forget what happened. But because we were able to reconcile and forgive, that means that we will not use what took place here against her in the future. And forgiveness in that matter looks, it looks like this, and, and I just want to share three statements. Number one, you promise that you will not bring it up to use it as leverage. Number two, you promise that you will not bring it up, or bring up the offense to others and slander the person who sinned against you, that you will not gossip about what the person has done to you. Number three, you promise not to dwell on the offense yourself, and I think this is the biggest challenge, right? The more you think about it, the more you dwell in it, even though you said that you have forgiven that person, right? You replay it over and over in your head, and that's just going to encourage you to allow the root of bitterness to take root in your own heart. And this is what forgiveness looks like. It does not mean that you forget, but you promise not to use that offense what, how, better how offensive that was against that person in the future so that you can maintain unity and peace, that you can continue to love and walk together as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How many have seen the movie Mean Girls? Mean Girls? I heard it's coming to Broadway. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys are going to actually go check it out. But in, but in the movie... Um, Regina George, Gretchen Wieners, and Karen Smith, they have this thing called the burn book, right? The burn book. And inside this burn book, I mean, they have all the dirty little secrets about all the people in that school, right? They kept record of all the bad things about everyone in that school. And I wonder, how many of us actually have a burn book? Do you have a burn book? Do you keep a record of all the wrongs, all the offenses, 
all the sins that people have committed against you? What is in your burn book if you have one? Who is in your burn book? You know, if God kept a record of our sins, no one will be able to stand before him, right? I mean, this is why he had to go to the cross. And I think Amy Carmichael, a missionary, and, and she's definitely on point when she writes, if I cast up a confessed, repentant, and forsaken sin against another and allow, allow my remembrance of that sin to color my thinking and my feed my suspicions, then I know nothing of Calvary love. You will be sinned against in this broken world. And do not be surprised when that happens. But when it does happen, how will you respond? Will you respond like everyone else will do in this world to lash lash out in words, to strike back, to seek to destroy that person? Or will you ask God to have mercy upon you so that even in that moment that you can exemplify the love of Christ in forgiving that person. I think this is something that we will continue to struggle with, but I do believe that through the power of the gospel and through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit and because we are becoming more and more like him every day, that as we continue to depend on him, this is possible for us, for you and me to love, to forgive like Christ and when, they, when people see us doing that, they will know that we are his disciples. And when you see yourself struggling, don't be discouraged. Because our Lord and Savior, he, he will indeed finish the work that he began in your lives. And when the next conflict, tension, argument arises, I pray that we can approach that as another opportunity that God is giving us to love and to forgive those very people. Let's pray. Let's take some time to respond to the message. Do you have a hard time loving and forgiving the people around you? Are you currently going through a conflict with a family member, relative, coworker, classmate? your neighbor. Maybe you already lashed out. Maybe you you already responded in a manner that is not pleasing before God. Maybe you're so upset to the point that the root of bitterness has, you know, taken root deep in your heart. And you know what the gospel says, and you know how you ought to respond, but you don't want to in your own sinfulness. Maybe all you see when you look into your heart is bitterness, wrath, anger. Maybe you've been struggling with clamor, slander, and malice because you're so upset. And this is why you and me, broken sinners, we need to go back to the cross, especially in those moments and remember the depth of our Savior's love for us. None of us deserve this kind of love. None of us deserve to be able to call God Abba Father. None of us deserve to be His beloved children, but yet, by His love and grace and mercy, that is possible. And if God can forgive 
wretched sinners like you and me, you know, who are we to say we can't forgive? We refuse to forgive. And I do believe that there are times God places difficult people in our lives to teach us how to love and forgive. So as we think about those very people in our lives, can we ask God to to help us, have mercy upon us, so that we will learn to love and forgive like him? Let's pray. God, have mercy upon us because this is an area uh, in which we fail miserably to love and to forgive like you. So God, would you have mercy upon us? And especially for those who are going through conflicts right now, those who have difficult people uh, in their lives that are so difficult to love. Father, would you remind all of us of the depth of love that you have for us And in those difficult moments when we refuse to love and forgive, Father, would you help us to go back to the cross and just to remember your love for us and let your love, your unfailing love, compel us to to go to love and to forgive those around us. God, thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Help us so that we may love and forgive like you. In Christ's name we pray. Let's continue to worship God as we give our tithes and offerings. And if you're visiting us today, please do not feel obligated to give.